Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Suzanne Scott, and she's going to talk to us about her new book, Fake Geek Girls, Fandom, Gender, and the Convergence Convergence Culture Industry. This is a brand new book published by New York University Press in 2019, and is a fascinating and interesting dive into our understanding of geek culture and essentially how the media industry works with regard to their fans. It's got a great cover, which I recommend to everybody to check out. And I'd also like to introduce Suzanne Scott to our program and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to this fascinating project. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the book. Um, So I came to this project, um, first and foremost, I think as a fan. I've been a avid uh, participant in fan culture for almost as long as I can remember. I certainly got into online fan culture and digital fan culture just as it was sort of being born um, when I was in high school and college. Um, And that included things like, you know, writing fan fiction and, um, you know, talking with other fans on IRC chats, and then eventually moving to sort of platforms we now associate with fandom like LiveJournal and Tumblr. Um, But in in terms of my academic interest in this work, Um, I discovered fandom around the same, I mean, I started participating in online fandom around the same time I actually discovered that fan studies was its own field. So when I was a sophomore in college at NYU, I took a television studies class um, with Anna McCarthy. um, And we read Henry Jenkins' uh, now very foundational fan studies work uh, from 1992, Textual Poachers. And I was kind of uh, stunned and, and amazed that there was there was a whole body, emergent body of literature and scholarship that was taking very seriously uh, the kinds of fan participation that I was uh, spending my leisure time, uh, you know, working in. Um, and when I got to grad school, um, I very quickly, uh, I took a sort of detour through horror studies and, and film noir studies. And I very quickly, though, realized the thing that I wanted to study was fandom and fan culture. And specifically, I wanted to look at um, both industry fan relations and how those were changing in light of um, 
the emergent sort of social media that was coming out at the time, um, how they were changing in terms of um, the kinds of media texts that were being produced that were catering to a fan demographic um, in a way they had not before. I'm basically interested in how, like what happens when fandom moves from the margins to the mainstream of both sort of contemporary thinking about power demographics, um, the kinds of texts that industry is producing, um, and then what that does to fan culture. And specifically, I mean, uh, and certainly this is inflected by my own experiences within fandom, I was specifically interested in how this kind of um, move from the margins to the mainstream was impacting women within fan culture. Um, Because fan studies historically has looked at female fan communities, um, women kind of taking media and making it more meaningful to them through producing their own transformative works like fan fiction and fan art. And uh, so for my dissertation, I wrote a uh, a book, I wrote a dissertation that was sort of toying around with many of these issues, um, thinking about gender and contemporary fan culture. Obviously, in the decade between the time I wrote my dissertation and when I was writing this book, um, all of these issues had been compounded fairly actively and changed uh, fairly radically. And so when I started to work on the, when I started to think about adapting the dissertation to a book project, most of the dissertation actually fell away aside from a sort of central interest in the gender politics of contemporary participatory culture. Um, and certainly um, as the introduction of the book, which is titled Make Fandom Great Again, I think makes clear, I was also very interested when I, when I came to this topic, and you can tell, I think, very actively the moment in history that I was writing this book, um, which was around the time of the 2016 presidential election. Um, you can, I think I wanted to show that this was not just the, the kind of misogyny that I was wanting to track in fan and geek culture um, was part of a much bigger kind of uh, set of political stakes, a sort of socio-cultural and, and socio-cultural shifts. Um, I, I, I mean, it's focused definitely on fandom and geek culture and what's happened over pa- over the past decade, and how gendered policing practices have emerged and been endorsed by media industries in particular ways. Uh, but I also wanted to hopefully gesture to the fact that this was tied to much broader kind of. Um, a broader socio-political moment and movements that are going on at the same time. And and that's what I think is really interesting about this work. And, and it crosses a lot of disciplinary boundaries moving into areas like political science and sociology, as well as having this core in media studies and understanding of film or fan studies also. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a couple of questions so that our diversity of listeners have a better understanding of sort of what we're talking about in terms of the industry itself, um, the media industry that you're evaluating and, and, and to a degree interrogating. And so can I start by asking you to explain a little bit of the terminology in the title itself, Convergence Culture? Sure. So just as I mentioned, um, just as Henry Jenkins' work was very foundational for me getting into the field of fan studies, uh, it was also very foundational for me in terms of conceptualizing this book. So in 2006, Henry Jenkins published uh, a book titled Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide, um, which was really interested in just tracing the industrial, technological, and cultural shifts that were all happening um, within this moment around the early to mid-2000s. 
And specifically, he positions fans in, in that book as kind of, it's not necessarily a book all about fans, but he positions fans as kinds of, as leading the charge on a lot of these trends, right? And many of these trends are about thinking about, um, you know, uh, the potential to sort of democratize forms of media production and distribution through platforms like YouTube um, and through like readily available editing software, photo manipulation software, that sort of thing. Um, he was really interested in thinking about how participatory culture was now the norm and not the exception and how technology, various technologies were facilitating that, how various industries were grappling with the fact that they had now a sort of more direct um, dialogue happening with their consumers and their users in a way that they had not had to grapple with before. Um, and also thinking about the kind of cultural shifts in which, you know, participation with, with media, which might have once been a purely sort of fanish pursuit, is now much more the sort of normal way in which we interact with media. So what I was interested in looking at for this book was sort of the darker side of those shifts. I think that that Henry, Henry Henry Jenkins' work tends to get painted as very utopian about these things. I think that's sort of unfair, frankly, to that book. I think he is very attentive to marking the ways in which uh, these kinds of shifts might actually um, not necessarily democratize or, or, or destabilize power dynamics that have existed for decades. Um, but I do, I did want to look at sort of maybe the more negative ramifications of some of these shifts, or at least think about the ways in which um, industry may be kind of forced to listen to its audience and have interactions with its audience much more frequently. But that doesn't mean that they still aren't trying to, you know, ideologically or legally kind of clamp down on the ways in which people use their intellectual property, um, the kinds of critiques they, you know, they want to sort of circumvent certain types of critiques that might um, be coming predominantly from marginalized audiences or users. Um, and so I wanted to sort of look at um, the same kind of, you know, technical, cultural, um, industrial sort of triptych that Jenkins is looking at. But I wanted to look at it a decade later and think about, well, where are we now? Um, and and think about whether the kind of some of the promises that, that, that Jenkins lays out in that book have actually been fulfilled or how how, in fact, those conditions are being weaponized by small subsets of. Um, predominantly white, straight male fans in order to alienate women within fan and geek culture. And you you do a nice job of setting this up, um, both the Jenkins work and also in context, um, sort of drawing from the Frankfurt School sort of perspective and, and framework, particularly with regard to Adorno and Horkheimer, in terms of thinking about how we think about the media. Is that correct? Yes. And, you know, if you had told me, if you had told me when I was writing my dissertation that the eventual book version of this would have would have been very indebted to Adorno and Horkheimer, I would have laughed in your face, um, which is which is interesting because, you know, Adorno and Horkheimer has a very fraught uh, relationship to fan studies because, you know, oftentimes fan studies is arguing against the kind of Adorno Horkheimer culture industry model, which sort of presupposes this idea that the media industry is sort of, you know, training these, um, you know, that the, the audiences can, are sort of cultural dupes and the media industry and the sort of standardized output that they're creating can kind of create this complacency. Fan studies is all about active audiences, is all about speaking back to media texts. It seems to fly in the face of like fans as a group seem to completely refute Adorno and Horkheimer's 
anxieties, right? About the sort of amount of control or sort of um, uh, influence that the media industry and the objects that it produced might have over the public. Um, what was interesting to me was to think about how I might kind of rework their notion about standardization. Like their concerns are really about what does it mean when we sort of standardize all of this media output and people are sort of consuming the same types of things over and over again and how that might kind of result in alienation or complacency in the audience. Um, and I was sort of thinking about this and I was like, well, what's interesting about the media industry now, the culture industry, as Adorno and Horkheimer would have called it, um, is that they're trying to create a kind of standardized version of a fan. And I don't think this is necessarily nefarious on their part. I think it's economically driven. Um, and I, I understand the logics behind it. But I wanted to sort of look at, you know, what are the ways in which, and, you know, like any good fan, I like a good mashup, right? So I was like, let's mash up some terminology and and think about, you know, what does the convergence culture industry look like? So what does the set of conditions that Jenkins is laying out in 2006 and what do the anxieties and kind of, I think, in some ways that have played out in particular ways that Adorno and Horkheimer are raising in the 40s, how might these things kind of converge in their own sort of convergence culture moment and then sort of produce a kind of attempt to standardize fandom that ultimately privileges particular types of fans, particular types of engagement, particular types of point of view at the detriment of creating a more inclusive, diverse fan culture. Yeah, and that was what I was really drawn into your writing and this analysis in terms of thinking about this particular this particular population, um, which is you know spread out and everywhere um, in lots of ways, but that in, in terms of the the sort of industrial model and the economic model part of what you are analyzing and critiquing is the fact that there's kind of policing um, that comes out of this kind of analysis. So I'd love for you to talk about this, because I think this is the heart of what you're analyzing is how does gender fit into or get pushed aside in context of who the media wants to be a fan that's a great question. I think so. The book looks at the kind of standardization of fan identities from a couple of different lens through a couple of different lenses. First, it looks at the ways in which fan scholars and fan studies have standardized a particular type of fan identity, which which you know I think is is important foundationally to this conversation, which is that the fan studies that I read you know in my early years in this field. Was, was overwhelmingly focused on women. I think it was implicitly and often in unstated ways focused on white straight women, which is a problem that I, that I try to tackle a little bit in the book. Um, so even that kind of standardization, even though it is privileging women and thus, you know, it's sort of central to my argument about why it sort of, uh, you know, it felt very interesting to me that suddenly we have this very masculinized vision of what a fan was because that was not my experience in either fan culture or fan studies. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so there, there's a certain standardization that happens in, in fan studies. There's also then the standardization that comes from the ways in which fans are represented in the media. So either fictional representations of the fan or um, in the popular press, right? And that, that overwhelmingly often is the kind of stereotypical fanboy that you envision in your head when I say the word fan, which is, you know, 
a kind of geeky white guy in his 20s or 30s wearing a Star Wars t-shirt, that sort of thing. Um, and the ways in which those kinds of standardized representations ultimately kind of privilege a vision of fan culture as a inherently masculine space. Um, then I'm interested in thinking about the ways in which the industry actually like encourages standardization and privileges uh, fan practices that have historically been associated with men. So um, for perfectly rational economic and business reasons, they love when people are you know, consuming things or collecting uh, fan ephemera and merchandise and that sort of thing. They're less interested in you know, erotic fan fiction written by women that challenges, you know, either ideologically or textually the kinds of narratives they want to produce. Um, they're less interested. So, so I do a couple chapters in the book looking at, um, you know, what types of fan activities do get kind of celebrated and held up by industry as being quote unquote good or valuable and which are sort of seen as being potentially challenging or quote unquote bad. Um, and then I also want to, so, and then who gets to sort of represent fandom professionally is another way that I look at this kind of standardization, like who gets to mobilize their fan identity for professional gain. And so that's looking at, um, uh, you know, sort of very public moderator figures like Chris Hardwick, who hosts the talking dead. That's looking at people like, you know, JJ Abrams, who has now mobilized his fandom to, to get to direct multiple, uh, uh mainstream sort of franchises. Um, fan-oriented franchises, and then thinking about the ways in which that works very differently for women um, when they enter those spaces. Um, so I hope that answered your question. I'm, I think I've lost track of it. No, I just, I, I, I mean, I, I think you sort of unpacked some of the aspects, particularly that you traced through the book, but I did want to ask you to be a little bit more specific about the idea of policing, Yes, that was it. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, so the idea here is that because of, yes, I basically was like one step away from getting there. Uh, the, um, all of this standardization, basically, I argue in the book that when we have this very standardized vision of fan identity and who is like a true quote unquote authentic fan and who is a interloper or an outlier in that model, um, it makes it much more easier to weaponize um, that standardization by a very small subset of fans. And again, predominantly we associate this with the actions of white straight men, but there's plenty of policing that happens in fandom done by white women, done by various people um, on the, on the grounds of race, uh, for example, that I don't get into as much in the book. Um, the idea here is that because they are told through all of these different means by the entertainment media industry that they are the target demographic, they are the prized audience, they feel like it is well within their rights to then police that community and make sure that the only people who are entering into it are quote unquote real or quote unquote authentic fans. And they often do this by these kinds of... Um, there's long running jokes on the internet about like sort of like fanish purity tests or authenticity tests. Um, it's often done through, you know, asking people, you know, shooting trivia questions at them until they trip up and then they're sort of deemed inauthentic. Um, and fundamentally, you know, asking people just a ton of trivia questions plays into what if it's historically been kind of masculinized modes of fan engagement. Women in fan culture might not know every piece of flora and fauna in this Star Wars, you know, galaxy, but they definitely do have a deep sort of um, maybe emotional and or uh, psychological understanding of the characters that they've sort of worked over over time. So basically, when I'm talking about gender policing in the book, 
I'm looking at things like um, uh, the sort of fakey girl discourse that popped up um, in, in the middle of the period that I'm studying. I'm looking at memes that kind of circulate like the idiot nerd girl meme that sort of presuppose that any girl will, will never have a true authentic investment in fan culture or geek culture and they're only doing it quote unquote for attention um i'm looking at the ways in which the industry has created this kind of standardized uh modes of engagement and identity that ultimately allow for this boundary policing to happen i'm not necessarily laying the responsibility firmly at their feet but they are certainly key players in allowing for it to happen and that's again to some degree based on the business model in lots of ways because they want people to buy things that are associated with whatever is being, whatever one is a fan of, um, as opposed to kind of challenging or possibly taking on and revising the sort of entire idea of the item itself or the concept. Yeah, I mean, but this is even getting more nuanced over time in really interesting ways. So it's no longer the case that, that like say the television industry in particular, which has been grappling with losing their their business model over this time period, I'm um, needing to find new ways to count and monetize their users or their viewers for advertisers. Like this is why we've seen live tweeting become such a popular thing that the television industry is encouraging, right? Um, because it lets them quantify and count their their viewers. It, it encourages live viewing. Obviously, it's in the title, live tweeting, right? Um, but even the case where, you know, we now see that instead of trying to legally clamp down on, say, fan art, media industries have realized that fan art is very popular. Um, they have been taking it up as part of their own promotional campaigns for their programs, for example. But even within those kind of moments that seem to be celebrating uh, the transformative impulse of fans or fan artwork or fans' own textual production – the types of text they choose to use to promote their products and those that they don't become very telling, right? Like you're never going to get, um, I mean, there's a whole very thriving kind of subgenre of erotic um, media that fans produce. That is obviously never going to be like retweeted by the official television show uh uh, account right. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna play it safe. They're gonna play it. You know they're gonna pick things selectively from fan culture that they feel like reinforce and serve a good reinforce their sort of uh, the text and serve a good um, promotional purpose for them. And again, I understand the impetus behind that. But what emerges from that is a sort of valuation or devaluation of particular types of fan practices that I find sort of disconcerting and how they, that might be weaponized by small subsets of fans. And, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit more, a sort of explanatory um, question in terms of fan culture itself. Um, I'm, I'm old and, you know, I know sort of how I participate in some, you know, fanish behavior. Um, but I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what we're talking about in terms of the, the entire scope, um, that you analyze within your book. Um, and this also how it connects to sort of our understanding of geek culture. Yes. So, I mean, I'm not covering the entire scope in my book, and I should be really clear about that. Uh, to do so would be, I, I have not seen any fan scholar do it yet. To do so would be an incredible feat, and I would tip my hat to whoever could manage it. Um, fan culture has gotten, has become so vast and so diverse 
Um, and so, and, and honestly, within media fan studies, uh, fan scholars tend to ha- even have their blind spots there. So we tend to focus on um, movie or television fandoms, uh, maybe some like some music fandom, um, video game fandom, maybe some comics fandom. Um, we often are not talking about sports fandom, though, though there's great work that exists on sports fandom um, and increasingly is being produced. But so you, you, I'm not talking about sports fandom at all in this book, for example. Um, so, so, and when you t- be in part, because I think there's sort of a different set of com- communal norms, a different set of practices, a different kind of cultural context, a different industrial context that I just didn't have the capacity to really fully explore in depth in a book like this. The book is predominantly focused on those facets of media fan studies that I just mentioned. So film, television, um, video games, comics predominantly. And I, and I picked those media in part because I do think that they sort of resonate with our popular, you know, cultural conception of what we identify as geek culture, right? Which tends to be very much medium driven. So when we think of like geek culture, we often think about things like video games and comic books. Um, I, there's a long, interesting, like, entomological history of like the words geek and fan and how they're actually very different. Also nerd we could throw in there. I'm using them mostly interchangeably within the book um, in part because I think that the popular press uses them interchangeably with some regularity now. Um, And so I wanted to sort of talk about them as a, as a, as a cultural construct. I mean, I think that some people might self-identify as fans. Some people might self-identify as geeks um, but since this wasn't an ethnography, I didn't really get to get into the nitty gritty of how people um, really think about those terms as uh, social identities, right? Um, and uh, and and so yeah, I, I think that uh, the, the scope of contemporary fan culture and fan studies is vast, and it's a huge growing field. So you have people who are just specializing on, say. Um, like Rebecca Williams is a wonderful scholar who's currently focusing on theme park fandom, people who are fans of theme parks like Disneyland and Universal. Uh, you have people who are focused predominantly on questions of labor. You have people who are focused predominantly on politics. Um, so much like fandom itself, which has become so big that it's kind of, in some cases, fragmented down to very small subcommunities. The field of fan studies has gotten so large that is now, I wouldn't say fragmented sounds like a negative word, but it has sort of has managed to sort of break down into smaller subsets and subfields. Um, so certain people are just interested in merchandising now, um, you know, so I think that that has been a really interesting thing to see develop side by side. I do think there's a parallel between the ways in which fan culture has become sort of massive and unwieldy and fan studies has as well. Um, and it makes it much less, and in some ways, my my book project is very indebted to a kind of older vision of fan studies and its and its investments in questions of gender and power and industry. Um, but I, I I thought it was important to kind of revisit those central concerns at this particular moment in time uh, for reasons I outlined in the book. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Suzanne, can you tell me a little bit about 
the thrust of your study, which is in, interested in understanding how misogyny has worked its way into this concept of geek culture. And again, you sort of noted this at the beginning of the interview, how we see this also translated across politics in lots of ways. Yes. I mean, I mean, if I had, if I had the answer to the root cause of misogyny in fan culture or politics or culture at large, uh, this would be a nationally bestselling book, I'm sure. Um, um, so I was really interested in thinking about the ways in which nostalgia is fueling um, both, I would say, white male supremacy and culture at large right now and within politics, um, but also thinking about the ways in which white male supremacy is is uh, is and nostalgia is fueled within fan culture right now. I think they're operating in somewhat different valences, um, and that I think is interesting to kind of unpack. And I do my best to do that within the over the course of the book. Um, within the case of um, you know culture at large or society at large and politics, I mean we're obviously seeing this nostalgia for a kind of lost sense of. Um, power and privilege that is being challenged increasingly um, within our society um, by, you know, starting with, you know, the feminist movement and various civil rights movements, you know, many decades ago. Um, And I think that that is based on this idea that, that people are longing for a somewhat simpler time. And particularly, I think white men are longing for a simpler time in which they were not being, their authority was not being challenged in any meaningful way. Um, and we see this play out, obviously, in politics constantly now. We see this happening with uh, the rise of the alt-right. We see this happening with uh, various men's rights movements that have emerged in the same time period that I'm looking at in the book. Um, in terms of geek and fan culture, I think it's somewhat more interesting in certain ways, or at least more complicated, in the sense that when, you know, predominantly white, straight men within fan culture bemoan the kind of arrival of women uh, and or any minorities, quite frankly. Um, and they, and they claim that they're sort of not, they're not real fans. They're sort of bandwagon fans or they're coming to this culture late as opposed to have been there all along, which they have been. Um, a lot of this gets predicated on, well, the thing that I used to be made fun of and bullied for is now, you know, the most popular thing in the cultural zeitgeist. Um, so there's a kind, it's not about like a, a want, a nostalgic return to a certain type of power. Um, it's oddly a nostalgia for a sort of sense of subcultural loss or a sense that you were a fan of something when it was not cool to be a fan. And it, in fact, many, many men were bullied for being, you know, geeks and nerds and fans. Um, and so what I found interesting to track in the book is sort of thinking about the ways in which in some ways the performances, the misogynist performances and how they manifest in places online um, are very similar. They come in the form of, you know, uh, they come out of very similar platforms often, platform, platforms like Reddit and 4chan um, are sort of havens for this. Um and in fact, I go back a long ways to think about like the early days of the internet and early digital spaces like MUDs and looking at the work of like Lori Kendall, who did great um, 
ethnographic work in these spaces in the 90s and thinking about the ways in which there was always kind of a cult of masculinity around geek and fan culture. It's a more complicated cult of masculinity, um, one that is often about kind of performing, um, you know, simultaneously kind of performing dominance, but over a very specific sphere of culture. Um, And when that sphere opens up to everyone, um, there is, I think, a palpable sense of loss that some segments of white straight male fan culture responded to very badly. And that that performs, they perform then in, in a way that sort of um, attempts to to make anyone else who's entering that space that they have they have theoretically or they claim have been sort of marginalized for themselves, um, they look to marginalize others who are already in marginal social identities and positions. So this odd thing where like, you know, this is about mostly in the case of fan geek culture, it's about white straight men claiming they used to have a kind of marginalized status in society, which again, sort of is, is counterbalanced by the fact that they were still white straight men, right? And they had the accordant privileges that attended to that uh, matrix of identity markers. Um, and so I think, you know, I think it's a very complicated uh comparison and one that I don't necessarily think I, I go into enough detail in, in the book, but it's one that I'm interested in exploring um, in my future work as well in a little more detail. And and so we you're sort of seeing an odd kind of understanding and glorification of a victim status. Absolutely. Which again is really interesting and in sort of turning it on its head as well. Um, and it's Go ahead. It's, it's, it's a victimized status that then is used as a rationale for victimizing others, which is obviously very counterintuitive, um, but is nonetheless what has been playing out. And you said this is something that you'd like to pursue in future work. So I'm going to ask you, what are you working on now? I'm, oh, yes, I'm excited about the work I'm doing now. So I'm working on three major projects. I'll just talk about two of them. Um So the first is I have a chapter in the book that's looking at Chris Hardwick. Um, Just as the book was going to press, uh, Chris Hardwick was embroiled in a Me Too scandal um, that I didn't get to address in sufficient detail in the book itself. Um, And so specifically, I'm working on a journal article right now that is a sort of corpus analysis of a um, like 40,000 signature change.org petition to get him rehired as the host of The Talking Dead. And I'm specifically, when I say I want to do more work in this area, I'm specifically looking at the fact that um, it seems, it seems at least visually based on things like username and, and, and user image that are being tied to accounts, which again, we could talk about, it's the internet, are these real identities? I'm going to grapple with all that in the article. But I'm interested in looking at the fact that predominantly the people signing this um, uh, change.org petition to get Chris Hardwick reinstated after his ex-girlfriend accused him of various types of emotional and sexual abuse are predominantly white women in their 40s, it appears to be. Um, and so I'm interested in drawing some parallels between um, the sort of wave of white women voting for Trump in 2016, some of the discontents around the Me Too movement and white feminism, and looking at it through the lens of this one kind of moment within fan and geek culture. And what, and, the, and specifically, one thing I don't tackle in the book is the ways in which women prop up these, white women prop up these systems and also do their own forms of boundary policing. And so I want to talk about that in a little bit more detail. This sounds like a great project. Will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it? Well, it's just going to be an article. I can't do any more hard work. I'm exhausted. Um, <laughs> 
So, so that's just an article that I'm working on right now, but it's a it's a very big undertaking. Um, the, my new book that I'm working on, I'm really excited about. Um, it's tentatively titled uh, "The Fan Body," um, and it's taking up a lot of the same um, interests that this book covers in terms of the ways in which fan identity is um, culturally constructed, how it's sort of the fan body still occupies this kind of um, fraught place within society and culture. It's often a site of, you know, we, we often think about, when we think about sort of bodily stereotypes of fans, we think about, you know, scrawny basement dwelling fanboys and, or like, um, obese, excessive fangirls. And so I'm interested, I'm less interested in representation though, because I find those to be pretty stereotypical and a little bit on the nose to be quite honest. Um, and instead, I really want to. I want to spend this book actually talking to fans and talking about their experience in lived bodies. So, um, it's going to let me talk about issues like size and ability and race in a way that I don't get to talk about in this current book project that we're discussing today. Um, I also so then chapters in that will be focused around things like food and tattoos and makeup and sex and um, cosplay and some of the. And merchandise and some of these areas that I that I started to explore in Fake Geek Girls, but I, I didn't really get a chance to explore thoroughly. And this will be much more driven by the voices of fans um, and those who self-identify as fans. Um, and that was really important to me for this project as well. And that would be something that I would love to talk about because I'm, I'm curious to know um, those sort of details about the fans themselves and how they see themselves in context of their fandom. Yeah. And I think that for me, you know, fake geek girls was really about kind of trying to zoom out and talk about kind of trends and, um, and various, uh, uh, shifts and, and systems at a kind of macro level. I'm really excited to kind of dig in and actually, you know, hear how people hear, hear how these, these conditions, these kind of cultural conditions I was trying to map in this current book project are actually impacting people in their daily lived lives. And, and so I would love to talk to you about that when it's done. <laughs> well, you might be waiting a couple of years on that one, but I would love That's to come back on and discuss it. <laughs> so Suzanne Scott, I'd like to thank you for joining me today um, to talk about fake geek girls, fandom, gender, and the convergence culture industry. And this was published by New York University Press in 2019. And besides the New York University Press website and the other places one can buy books online, is there any place you'd like to shout out where one can pick up a copy of your book? Yes, I would love to. Um, the wonderful, wonderful bookstore, Book People, right here in Austin, Texas, I know is carrying a couple copies of the book currently. So you, and I actually put a couple of little fanish uh, bits of swag and surprise in those books. So if you run down and pick them up today, they should still be there. Cool. Thank you so much for joining me today, Suzanne. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.